welcome to another episode of the Undercut Podcast. We are back, and this time we are going to be delving into everything Formula 2 because it has just had a triple header, as did Formula 1 and Formula 3. And to be honest, there was too much of that for us to cover in one week, get it all out, and have a preview episode. And then no one would have listened to it because there'd just be too much stuff we wouldn't have the time to. So we're going to take our time with it now and go everything from Spa, Sandvort, and Monza for you to listen to at your leisure. So to help me out with all of that, I'm joined, as always, by my excellent co-host, Jesse Billington. How are you this evening? Um, still dog-tired, not entirely certain what level I'm supposed to be focusing on. I landed in Italy, no, landed back from Italy yesterday morning, spent the entire day trying to do work remotely, then got up at the crack of dawn to drive from London to Peterborough to do work in the office, and then got home. I'm still surrounded by, like, holdalls and camera bags of kit, get and all sorts and yeah i don't know i'm lost i'm hoping that our guest is a little better then because we're also joined by inside f2's lawrence griffin how are you yeah not too bad just just moved house um but <laughs> managed to to cope with the combination of a, of a triple header and a house move and and everything that's been been going on at the moment um but yeah looking forward to getting getting stuck into it so it's all very chaotic and hopefully we can just lend a bit of normalcy back to it now that the things have hopefully calmed down a little bit, although I probably yeah. shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> fingers crossed and let's just get on with it, I think. So we'll go into our, our long section here of what the hell has happened. So we'll start off with Spa, which seems not longer than a couple of weeks ago at this point for F1, never mind F2. So quick reminder of the key points here before we get into it sprint race lawson won it did an absolutely dominant performance there and it was very great to see that from him doing in second with boshan coming back to do after being out for a few rounds due to injury and it's the place not a bad way to die his comeback future race then saw doing win with drogovic in second and lawson again on the podium in third um, which kind of begs the question doing an f1 for 2024 maybe and now that we've had all three rounds and we know the outcome of the F2 title championship, was this where Porcher really lost his title chances? Lawrence, as the F2 expert possibly among us, I'm going to let you have first crack at Spa. Uh, well, Spa was Spa was a very interesting round. I think it. I think just to pick pick on up on the last point you made there. I think it was not perhaps quite the point that Teo Porcher lost the championship, but it was the point at which. It, it became a bit of a mountain to climb from there. It looked in, increasingly unlikely because, of course, coming into it, you know, through the previous rounds in Hungary, he did so well. And Drogovic seemed to be losing the momentum where Porcher was building it. And then Spa was just a massive swing in the opposite direction. And throughout the weekend, he didn't look, he didn't look particularly quick, um, only qualifying in, in P8. And then going backwards in the sprint race, which I think was a real surprise to ev- to everyone that he would get. So very got, uncharacteristic of Porsche mm, He got completely swamped at the start. Um, he was, he lined up, this is the sprint race, of course, he lined it up, lined up P2, thinking, okay, he's had a poor qualifying, but he can, he can make it back with a good sprint race. And then who knows, he'll be able to come up through the field during the feature race. And then he starts P2 because Daruvula didn't manage to make the start. He gets swamped, um, up the camel straight and falls back to to fifth, I think it was, on the on the opening lap, and then suddenly his title rival is right behind him, 
and you're thinking well how on earth has that happened and you know that there's going to be such distance between them next day in the in the feature race and then in the feature race itself of course he he retired from p8 i think it was and he hadn't even made up any positions when when his his car gave up on him but one thing that i thought was quite interesting was that when we talked about the issues that have been happening with some of these cars in the press conference on the on the sunday after the feature race I think I think it was both Drogovic and Lawson through various parts of the weekend had struggled with their engines as well. They had certain there were certain gears. Both of them had this issue where in certain gear they weren't getting full power out of the engine, so they had to short shift or just or shift past. I think it was third gear for for Liam Lawson in qualifying, and so you wonder with that engine giving up on Porsche during the race, how much that was holding him back potentially in the sprint race and even in qualifying. Was he slightly down on power? This is the issue when you have a, a spec series and the engines in that spec series are starting to let people down is that it leads you to question, you know, how even are the cars actually out? Are they actually producing the same out of horsepower? Which is, uh, yeah, not a, a sort of conversation you want to be having if you're someone that loves Formula 2. Oh, and... and- as you were saying, there were also the other drivers aside from Portrait having these kind of issues. It does, in a way, make what Lawson was able to do of the entire weekend that more impressive, Jesse. It does sort of drive home the fact that he was able to get around these problems. He was able to sort of survive the unlucky dip, as it were, of problems that seem to be coming both mechanically, reliability-wise. You look at sort of problems coming out of the actual cars themselves beyond what the track and the other drivers were throwing at each other. So, yeah, it, it sort of adds kudos to what Lawson was able to achieve through sort of the running and spa. And, yeah, neatly drives home again, especially coming off the back of an FP1 drive, uh, just sort of that extra bit of sort of he's got the the nous and the ability that sort of should earn him an F1 seat eventually. It's uh, just a question of when he can put together the full display package. And it's also worth noting, Lawrence, that Boschong, after being gone for quite a while, and especially the big gaps in between races for F2 as well, sometimes, never mind just a summer break, to come back and then put it in third place, just regardless of whatever else happens in the other two rounds for him, not a bad way to come back and show I'm still all right at this. Definitely not. Um, and it, what, a, what a story as well for him to come back in that manner because it was so tough for him to have to, to sit out. I think it was... I think was it Monaco that he tried to come back and then he couldn't. His doctor told him that he, that he couldn't, so he had to sit out. He was really trying. You could see how much he wanted to be in in the car, but had to make the decision that he needed to sit out to protect his neck long term. Um, and then the fact that he actually returned in Spa was actually a bit of a risk. That was also against sort of medical mm. advice. But he, there was, uh, there was suggestions that there was contract, a contractual need for him to to be in the car or for him to, for his own benefit, just to keep racing in order to keep the sponsors happy. Um, and so when you think that you're you're driving under such pressure in terms of the the finances and having been out with this injury and still suffering from it, to have performed as well as he did around somewhere like Spa, which is not a track that you can drive. You know, you can't you can't sort of drive at half effort around Spa. You have to commit fully, otherwise you're going to be nowhere in such a competitive field. So the fact that he pulled that off, yeah, what a great story. And very reminiscent as well, Jesse, of kind of the racing drivers of old where they would get injured in the 50s and 60s and just 
not tell anyone about it until after they'd done the racing that they needed or wanted to do. And then, oh, I was maybe in a little bit of pain, not having mentioned that they fractured a, a bone somewhere or other like this, and just kind of reminded me of that a bit and pushing the limits of how much you can actually do that and get away with it in modern motorsport. Yeah, it's reminiscent of the old world of motorsport, and the old world of F1 or even motorcycle racing and you, or even endurance racing sort of pushing through the pain for the good of the sport and because you enjoy doing the sport and there's the determination to do it and to give your best. And I think on a character level, regardless of sort of driving ability with Bosham on that character level, that's certainly going to put him in a good stead when you, when you put that forward in or CV and someone looks at the full detail behind your racing season and goes, you got back in that car having suffered those issues and that pain you're determined there's a winning mentality to you yeah we'll sign you up for an lmp1 seat we'll sign you up for a gt seat mm. in sort of endurance even if he doesn't make it to f1 another eagle-eyed series another eagle-eyed team is likely to really do well snapping him up moving on to Zanford then sprint race we saw a completely different podium in which Maxon from back on the top step Clement Novelak with his first F2 podium in second place, and then Dennis Hauger finishing off the podium in third place. Not too bad for him, and nice to see that he's... Essentially, it's, it's both good and bad to not see him do uh, an Oscar Piastri in terms of dominate F3 and then dominate F2 straight away. I'm kind of happy that it's a little bit more difficult for him, but it's then nice to see him making that progress up and get to grips with it all, and just shows the difference in difficulty between f3 and f2 and makes what piastri and others have done before that bit more impressive there um then in the future race as well there was a lot there was a lot to go on there so actually i'm going to go back and sprint race for a second and we'll just appreciate that for one moment there so Lawrence, i'll put it back to you completely different podium from what we had in spa who impressed you most from from those three out of the feature race podium sprint race podium sprint podium I think I, th I think it'll have to be Armstrong really in terms of his the the it was just the launch off the line really in Zandvoort that was the the real key to the to the race win because not a lot happened but then being the front runner everyone else being in a DRS train and being stuck you can sort of understand that but Armstrong punching his own hole in the air was the one that was going to be vulnerable and for him to go through the restart and execute that properly was was really impressive for Novelak as well to keep up to hold the pace he did he did really well and it was just a shame for him that he that he lost out at the at the race start um but yeah a, a good podium for Dennis Hauger as well in been a season that's been a bit bereft of highlights as you said there might have been an expectation that he came into f3 f2 and started to dominate having won um, in F3, and I think he's probably been one of the one of the drivers that's sort of underwhelmed most in in 2022 in terms of what was expected of him. Um, so it's good for him to get that that podium, but he needs to start getting those regular qualifying positions and regular feature race podiums if he's to really make more of an impression. I think it's potentially one of those cases where short term pain and 
disappointment for fans in that respect because they have these expectations, but in the long run, it might be better for him because it gives him a little bit more breathing time in F2 and potentially if, he, if F1 is the obvious aim for him still, by the time he's ready for it, then or seem to be ready, there might actually be a seat available for him rather than having to kick it around as a, as a reserve driver. Absolutely. And I, th- I think people are people starting to sort of be more accepting of the fact that it sometimes takes drivers longer to build up the experience and then perform. We saw it with Mick Schumacher in Formula 2 as well. He wasn't able to just be unstoppable in his first season. It took him a year. You know, you see with drivers like George Russell in Formula 1, he's had those years to build up the experience. He's gone into a more competitive car, albeit not as competitive as he would have expected it to be, and he's really been delivering. So I think you know, we can all start to accept that it does take some drive that extra year sometimes to build the experience and then to develop. And sometimes in the long run for their careers, that can be much better. We'll say for Dennis Halger, when he does make it to F1, which I think is fairly likely he might do if he sort of really solidifies himself in F2 and proves he's got the sort of the nous for it. There is a big Dennis Halger fan club that goes to sort of races. There was a lot of Norwegian fans at Monza over the weekend just gone so it'll be interesting to see how the sort of the atmosphere and the social side of things change when he makes that step up because if they're following around for F2 for the junior feet the feeder series when he gets into the big leagues that's going to be almost orange army levels of crazy you've got that kind of thing there which you had with Max Verstappen and that you didn't have a Dutch driver or in other words a really good Dutch driver for such a long time that it's the same with Norway who's the last Norwegian Racing driver in like F2, F1 that you can think of if there were, if there was one, just if you're the types of way to find out now. But it's the fact that it doesn't come immediately to mind is very telling of that. So it could be very interesting to see. And it wouldn't be this podcast without a creative prediction. So maybe this is how we get a Norwegian Grand Prix at some point, which I think could be quite interesting. I don't know how, and that's probably a subject for another podcast. And we don't have time for that much craziness, especially when we've got the Zandvoort feature race, um, which there was so much to go on going on in there. Sergeant Red flags after kind of hitting Boshung a little bit and then crashing into turn seven. Then Virtuosi and Sato had a massive pit stop tyre cock-up. And then you had Mugello 2020 vibes on the race restart, which involved Novelite taking Calderon out and himself. And then for sure took Doan out as well. And then wasn't really penalised for it. It was kind of seen as a, as a racing incident by some, although not everyone was quite that uh, forgiving about it, I don't think. And then you had quite an amusing thing during some of the pit stops where there was a mechanic who just stood there as cars, as I can't remember which car it was, but coming very close to him, did not move, just did not care, and was kind of imitating the pigeons out on track because there was zero, zero fudges given there at all about what was going on and ended up somehow with Drogovic winning that in kind of he survives and manages to not only get on him but win with Richard Vashore musing in second with Iwasa in third and Jesse what did you make of all of that just chaos I mean my my notes from Zandvoort for F2 were sprint race was dull feature race messy and I think that was sort of rather the version of the weekend yeah i mean there was that big move from logan sergeant that saw him in the wall it, it was a bold move for him to try and make that and had it worked it would have been pretty damn incredible but it 
yeah, I think he was making a big move on a driver that wasn't potentially the one you try and make big moves on. That's like sort of trying to send one up the inside of Nicholas Latifi and then being surprised when you're in the wall all of a sudden surrounded by a million pieces of what was once your Formula One car. And it then just sort of all spiralled from there. I will say the onboard shots as the Zandvoort cranes picked up Formula Two cars from around the track and just sort of dangled them around like some sort of mobile was was quite funny, to be fair. That was a brilliant bit from... It's nice to get a new outlook on, on Formula Two that we've not had before. It looked like some sort of sim race gone wrong, like it hadn't properly rendered the circuit, and all of a sudden you just did this car and systems glitched. But yeah, for Drogovic to get back onto his winning ways, he hadn't really had a good run of things up until that point. He had done well in a sprint in the sprint race in Belgium, but to get him sort of back up and sort of winning again really rekindled sort of the his sort of championship fight really and helped him pull out ahead of Porsche. And yeah, I think Sato was, if anything, lucky with that badly fitted wheel. That could have been a lot more of a dangerous incident than it turned out to be. And the Interestingly, fact he was... reminisce in hindsight of Formula One that was to come. It's always you have uh, an Asian driver with a tyre problem and then Yuki comes along and therefore does the exact same thing. It's going to set the conspiracy theorists mad with that one. Yeah, I don't think Yuki's thing I've come to, uh, from the research I've done, if you do your own research, uh, was that it wasn't really tyres for Yuki that were the problem, it was a failing rear differential. But uh, yeah, with that Sato thing, he was very lucky that it ended the way it did compared to how it could have done. Uh, although I will say my sort of winner, if I had to pick one for that feature race, would have been Teo Porcher because he really rescued uh, some good points out of, out of nothing there, if anything on the madness indeed there and Iwasa back on the podium and first time since France I think it was Florence if I'm not mistaken where he won obviously yeah a really impressive performance from him he's another one who's come in as a rookie and is I think now already looking ahead to next season because I think he's in the category of if he builds a good title challenge next season, he can be putting himself right in the mix there for a for a 2024 F1 seat. And, you know, traditionally, and at, at the moment, the Red Bull sort of junior driver program isn't flooded with, with talent that the Red Bull think is ready for F1. Why else would they be looking to Colton Herter? For a, hmm. for a seat at Alpha Tauri. There's clearly, they've not got anyone in Formula 2 who's quite ready there. If you look at um, Yuri Vips, I think he's pretty much, they've caught all ties with Yuri Vips, it seems now. There doesn't seem to be much of a relationship there. And Liam Lawson, who's coming as the test driver now, he, I don't think he's quite ready, he hasn't quite performed to the level that people maybe expected in a second season. And Halger hasn't had a good year either. So, he could quickly emerge as the Red Bull front runner for an F1 seat next season if he if he keeps up the good work. So very exciting times for him. But it's just that step in consistency it can be so difficult to make. So it will it will really depend on on that getting the qualifying sessions week in week out qualifying within the top sort of seven or eight places is what you need to do. I think whichever one of them ends up being. And Alpha Tauri driver for 2024 needs to kind of imitate the pigeons that were on track and just really big balls and just stick it all on the line and hope for the best. There needs to be a lot of them sticking it on the line, but equally I'd like to see Red Bull sort of stepping up and actually doing something proactive with how they're looking after their junior drivers and training them and giving them the tools to develop as drivers. Otherwise, 
it's all it's basically it's Red Bull's fault when they go and say, "Oh, we haven't got any good junior drivers." You have about a trillion of them, but you've actually failed to do anything with them proactively, and now you're looking at trying to sort of fudge the super license system so you can steal Colton Herta from IndyCar because you failed to do anything with the talent you'd amassed. And it's sort of almost the opposite problem to McLaren, where they sort of go around and find all this good talent and have all the sort of massaging to make sure they're in the right series to do the right thing with the right machinery. Red Bull just sort of sticks them in F2 and then just says, see you when you get to F1. No advice, no help, nothing. And then you've got the likes of Dr. Helmut Marco going, I'm not very impressed with what we're seeing in F2 this year. And you're sort of going, no shit, you've done nothing to help them as per. So... It's sort of the school of hard knocks, but I reckon, yeah, like we said, if Iwasa can pull something together and mount a good championship run next year, he could be in the running for that F2 seat. There's going to be a lot of drivers that are going to be trying to make a big championship push next year. Obviously, poor chair is going to be looking to make a big run of it. And then you've got Iwasa, Hauger, Lawson, all also sort of vying for that podium. F2 is going to be the one to watch next season, I should think. Absolutely. And, and one of those drivers as well is that, I think will be certainly in the mix. We've already talked about Jack Dewan. I actually was really impressed by his Sandvoort weekend. The sprint race, you can sort of chalk off because nobody moved anywhere in the sprint race. But the pace he was able to hold in the feature race with a tyre that had no place anywhere near a motor circuit, it was, it was, it was incredible that he was able to be that quick. And the overtake on Vashore around the outside of turn three, that looked like he was just going to drive up up off the banking and into the abyss. It was sensational. Um, and I think he's another driver who's looking ahead to next season. So I think although he got taken out at the restart, and that looks disastrous for him because he's had a DNF, he actually, I think, impressed in terms of the pace he delivered. He looked like the quickest driver out there. And once you put that together with how well he drove in Spa, you start to build a picture of, of the, of the driver and the team bosses will start looking at him and thinking well this is someone that we can seriously consider for a seat and people have even been talking about him for a seat for 2023 with everything that's been going on at Alpine so I think that even though it doesn't look it on paper was actually a really impressive weekend in Zanfort for doing I think it's again one of those things where context is so important and you need to really look at that when you're evaluating a driver, because like you say, you see a DNF thing, they probably just screwed up somewhere. It's like, well, no, actually, <laughs> she was punted off and didn't really do it. Like, some things are unavoidable. I mean, it's like saying that all the cars that were taken out of Magello in 20 hours, all their fault because they should have reacted quickly. Well, no, was, there was a lot of different things going into that. That was the problem there. So, again, I think, like you say, he's one of these drivers where people were saying about him, oh, he should be a contender for the F1 seat at Alpine next year. I don't want to rush these kind of drivers because, okay, you have someone like Max Verstappen or Oscar Piastri who would have been great to see Piastri there this year just to see what he could have done after winning three championships on the trot to see how much of that momentum could be carried forward. But equally, you see what a year out's done for someone like Alex Albon, who just seemed to be spiralling because of the Red Bull situation there. And he's come back into Williams incredibly comfortable and scoring points in a car that doesn't really have any right to be and kind of trouncing the teammate that's been there for a couple of years. And you just think if you just let these drivers develop a bit more, especially the ones in the Red Bull program, if we go back to that, you can then maybe stop being so disappointed in them because 
not everyone's going to be special special. Not everyone's going to be used for step. And you need that second driver. And even if they're not going to be someone to win a championship for you, that doesn't mean they can't be a really great rear gunner or someone who can at least develop and then after a year or two develop into someone who could maybe beat like Stefan like Daniel Ricardo did. So I feel like they're they're always trying to limit themselves a bit on looking for the next one of those and anyone who's not up to this important standards, I don't we're not interested. Yeah, Red Bull always seems to be looking for the next generational talent. And that's the thing, you have to wait a generation for that to come through. And obviously we had it come through with sort of Sebastian Vettel. Then we obviously had Lewis Hamilton's chances sort of being that generational talent. And obviously Lewis's time as that sort of generational talent has diminished. But equally, Max's time as his sort of generation's talent is also coming through at the same time, which is why we saw the brilliant championship we saw last year and why we're seeing the same, a similar sort of championship from Max this year. I think Red Bull's too eager to just sort of go, you there, you're our next generational talent and some sort of spotted little Eugen F3 just goes, oh, me? And they're sort of like, ah. And all of a sudden they sort of heap this pressure on it with, again, like we've already mentioned, no support and just go, good luck, we'll see you when you get to F1. Uh, and, and the fact that they have so many to choose from means that there's even more pressure in a way because mm. they can be replaced so easily. Yeah, it is that it's that sort of clone army thing of if you fail us, we will simply replace you. If you do a Yuri Vips, we will simply replace you with a Liam Lawson. And I think that the brutality of Red Bull makes it a very hard place to survive, let alone in F1, in F2 and F3, much the same. And yeah, I think it, it will be interesting to see how they progress. But with Jack Dewan... I think potentially he's got his Alpine links. They seem to be a bit more measured, a bit more calm in their approach as to how they structure their driver academy, how they sort of bring people into craft and develop them. You look at the fact they've now got um, Alice Powell as like their sort of talent scout and coach for things. You've got a very calm, very methodical and brilliant racecraft head with Alice Powell who will be able to help and develop drivers. You look at the work she's done with Abby Pulling so far in W Series. She's produced a fantastic racing driver there if Alpine can sort of create a system where they can get this brilliant talent that is Alice Powell, who's got a, a brilliant knack for coaching drivers and get them to work with Jack Doohan, I wouldn't be surprised if with a bit of cheeky sort of overwinter testing with older chassis so they can get away with it, if they wanted to chuck him in that F1 seat next season, he might not be on par with Esteban Ocon for the first half of the season. But as we've seen with him in F2, come around Silverstone where he really picked up his act and got used to things he sort of flew after that point and yeah it might be a struggle for the first half of the season but after that I wouldn't be surprised if he sort of goes okay right, this is F1 I've got it here we go and we see something surprising from Doohan Yes, I do. I do think he has that ability as well to to adapt quickly, even though he hasn't had the consistency. It's it's like speed and consistency in Formula Two are very, very different. He had speed from the get go in Abu Dhabi. He was on the front row in Bahrain this season. That was Abu Dhabi last year, of course, when he when he came in just for a couple of rounds. And in Bahrain this year, he put it on pole, very first sort of session of any kind of note of the season, and he puts it on the on pole. So he had the speed immediately avoiding incidents, managing tyres and generally pacing yourself through a race and then building the consistency to qualify and be in the right place of the track, doing the right speed with the right tyre temps every single session, every weekend. That's a totally different thing and he's beginning to develop that now. But definitely I think he has the, the pace if he's got a good enough team around him to nurture him. 
I don't think there's a reason why you couldn't go into F1 next season and perform to a, to a very decent standard. At the very least, be the driver that if he's not in F1 and he is in F2 making a chance for the championship again, then stick him in all, all the FU1 sessions so that by the time 2024 comes around, he has that kind of, like you were saying, his Abu Dhabi Formula 2 experience as a test run to see and let him get familiar with everything so that when he pops it in, in Bahrain, I'm not saying he'll get pole straight away, depending on how much Alpine develops next year, but he should be up there pretty quickly with Ocon and it'll be interesting to see how those two kind of interact with each other. But uh, what I'm thinking here is that we are all definitely fans of Jack Dillon and we could start our own little fan club for him, which we yeah. may have to save for another time. Yeah, I was going to say one final point on him. If he does do another year in F2 next season, I can see him mounting a very similar championship to what we saw from Drugovic this year, one based entirely on consistency where he might not be winning it every week. He might not be setting the time boards alight, but he is just absolutely smashing it out on the consistency front, getting the big points exactly when he's needed to, not doing anything silly, not doing anything dangerous, just being there. And as we've seen, that works in F2 when it is such a chaotic series where if you do try the big things, the big stunts, it doesn't work. But if you are simple and consistent, that is the strong point. And it, it's paid off for doing. He won the championship despite DNFing from a race. Through the bitch, yes. Again, I'm tired. I'm going to get two big names. We're going to be D the wrong way around. There we go. We'll move on to Monza then, which first bit of news from there, Roy Nassani was banned, which for a whole lot of reasons, because he basically got too many points in his license, which in some ways is surprising it took this long. Uh, this The final nail in his this time was that uh, he was penalised for failing to fall back behind David Beckham, who uh, he believed had overtaken before a safety car was called. Um, and then he had to sit out Monza and was replaced by Luca Giotto, which was an interesting choice. He last went uh, racing in 2020, finished the championship in 2019, third place. I'm going to throw this over to you, Lawrence. Right person to replace him, even if it's just around, or missed the opportunity to showcase another talent from either F3 or elsewhere? I think for, for the team, it makes a lot of sense. Um, having a, an experienced pair of hands that can go in there and give you feedback on the car, that's going to have the authority to give you feedback on the car and, and can talk to you in terms of setup and help you develop as a team. That makes a lot of sense. I think the issue with the Monza weekend was that a lot of the younger drivers who they probably would have wanted to put in that seat were busy with the season finale in Formula 3. Um, so I think that made it quite difficult. So then when if you look beyond Formula 3, who are you going to pull in there if they're a young talent? If you're not sure they're going to be in your seat next season, why would you, as a team, put yourself through that, trying to adapt a rookie to the car? So I think for the team's perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But from a fan's perspective and for the sport in general, it would be brilliant to see someone slightly more obscure pulled in, someone from a different series to see how their talent sort of translate across into Formula 2. Someone like a, a Jamie Chadwick, for instance, that we've seen how brilliantly she's driven, or even Abby Pulling, if you, if you mentioned, of course, two drivers that have driven brilliantly in W Series. And what would be brilliant is to see how they stack up in Formula 2. It put a lot of pressure on them, of course, but I think particularly Jamie Chadwick with the amount of years she's been in W Series and how well she's driven and everything that she's won, she's ready to 
prove herself elsewhere in the next step someone like her would have been a brilliant choice i think for that for that seat but like i say i think for the team it makes absolute sense to have put giotto in that seat so you touched upon a point that I will get to in a little bit. I'll just run through the rest of, of Monza first. So then sprint Wait, race... Before you jump oh, into that, on. I will just interject and say it's a dis- it's annoying almost that the IndyCar season finale was on the same weekend. Otherwise, I would put big money on Red Bull having thrown a lot of cash towards dams to take... Um, this is again... Yes, um Herter and put him in that seat just to sort of almost as a showcase to the FIA to go, look, see, he's not an idiot behind a Formula Series car. Are you sure about that super license thing? Because had it not been for that, I reckon he would have been on the first plane out to Monza. And again, it would have been interesting to see him competing. The last time he was in sort of a European-style sort of single-seater series was, I think it was like a regional F4 series in the UK, where he didn't do too badly against some surprising names, but it's been a long time for him since he was racing these sort of circuits, and it would have been an interesting showcase, an interesting challenge, certainly. Anyway, as you were. Surprising names. The sprint race podium was full of three drivers that we might not have been really expecting and showcase. I mean, all of Monza in F2 this last weekend kind of showcased why Formula 2 is Formula 2. Uh, Yuri Vips won the race, kind of somehow coming out of nowhere from, especially after his obscurity of a season of near misses and other controversies, winning it by a country mile. Vesti then in second, with Druvula in third, with those two reversing slightly for the feature race, with Druvula finally winning a Formula 2 feature race. It's been about 67 years, but he got there in the end. Vesti again, consistency out of nowhere, second place. Don't know where he suddenly found that pace from, but again, it's possibly come at just the right time for him to make sure that anyone who is doubting him, especially at Mercedes, who are looking potentially aware what they can do with him in the future, pulled that out bag at the right time, and then Fittipaldi got most to the podium after an interesting way to disqualify Rasa, I want to describe that as, because we're trying to be as neutral as possible there. Uh, both F2 races were rather chaotic and saw several retirements, and ultimately Felipe Drogovic won the F2 championship with a round to go, which surprised absolutely no one. Um, made it a little bit more amusing if more unsatisfying that he did it DNFing of all things and kind of hits home rather harshly for Portrait that yeah you weren't going to win it this year and subsequently then Drogovic was announced as the first member of the Aston Martin Driver Academy which a lot of us were thinking was the only realistic place he could go even if he wasn't going to get a seat at the actual team in terms of being on the F1 grid this is probably as close to it as he's going to get for now um Going back to Paul Cher then, Lawrence, I'm going to be slightly harsh again, but did that crash represent kind of his whole season and his chances of getting an F12 one next year? I, th- I think I think that's that's slightly harsh on him. I think I think that crash that was a bit of a misjudged rejoin from from Boshung, I think, and you've sort of caught in a in a sandwich there. And I think at that at that point it was it was done already wasn't it really it was it was it was over and I think the the real if you want some sort of symbol of the moment that his championship ended I think you don't need to look any further than that crash in Zandvoort in qualifying I think that's really when we knew for sure at that point that that Drogovic would win and win in Monza that it wouldn't go to the final round um and but I think the 
losing the championship is one thing. The manner in which it happens, I think, is also really important. We talk about how the drivers are portraying themselves to the F1 team bosses. And he's sort of, it's looking like his season's sort of fizzling out. And if he has another poor round in Abu Dhabi, it will start to look like a very one-sided season for poor chair where he's had this triple header and then the final round where he's failed to perform and he could lose second place. And even if he does finish in second, finish by such, behind by such a margin that this talent who came through F3, who really set the world on fire in his first season in Formula 2 and then emerged as a title contender, was the only person challenging someone who's in their third season who has all that experience that you think well this is brilliant it has some momentum and surely this will you know give him a springboard into formula one that momentum is sort of being sucked out of his of his season now and yeah he really needs to be making a a really good race in in abu dhabi to impress upon the ft f1 team bosses that he's a talent worth considering but especially the, more so when he has been, I can't remember if he confirmed it or not, but giving Alfa Romeo the impression that I'm not racing in F2 next year, kind of in a hint you've got to put me in the phone call where Alfa Romeo like, well, we're not going to get rid of Bottas. Joe's doing rather well, better than we kind of all expected, and we're very happy about that, so we're probably going to keep him. So unless you want to reserve seats and you're not going to be racing anything, then I... Maybe it's it's a case of he comes across because we get we know he's a good driver, but it's, again maybe he's trying to bank it too much on his past reputation rather than on the current situation. And okay, sure, people in previous years like Yuki Tsunoda and other drivers, something when Lando and George and Alex all came in as well, they all obviously didn't win the title. Only one person could do that. And if you finish second, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get into F one after that especially when people lower down have been able to do that, but it also shouldn't mean that you also think it's your right to get in there and that can come across not brilliantly to, to anyone who is already on your side and nurturing you anyway, but if you then give them this kind of ultimatum as such and you say, well, I'm not doing this, so you've got to put me here, and they're like, well, no, we don't actually because we've got two perfect good drivers and if we want you to go there and you can you can, you can go back there, but we won't back you and then you definitely don't have a seat in 24 because... There's so many other drivers that play for other seats. He, he really needs, like you say, he needs to pull it out of the bag a bit in Abu Dhabi if he wants to kind of salvage his year in some way, which for someone who's in second place in championship, you wouldn't think it would be kind of right. that situation, but it's a little bit reminiscent of Piastri in some ways. It's like, how are you causing this much drama when you're not even there yet? And I think with the issue with Abu Dhabi as well for Formula 2 drivers is it's so late silly season will probably be done by the point that we get to Abu Dhabi. I think the most likely path now for poor chair, I think because we've seen with, we've seen with Drogovic that winning in your third season will always have an asterisk next to it of, well, you know, the tires, you know, the car it's expected things that Drogovic did, for instance, in Barcelona, you're thinking, well, that management of the tires and that judgment, that is experience and that's what it what it gains you. And I think I think that's a fair point to make. So I think for Porsche, he's going to be looking, thinking, what is the value of me doing a third season? I don't think there is. I think Porsche is most likely to do what Drogovic has done and what Piastri has done and go into some sort of reserve role, gain experience, get embedded in 
a Formula One team get known more within the paddock and then look for a Formula One seat. I think that potentially is going to be the more normal route now that we're seeing with Piastri, with Drogovic and potentially with Porcher as well, that they go into this reserve driver role. Um, but it does, it, you know, it's left Drogovic in an awkward position, this sort of limbo between not a Formula Two driver, not a Formula One driver. And for some, like Piastri, it appears to have worked. But for others, like Callum Eilat, let's say, he hung around for a year and it, he didn't get anywhere with it. If the door's not open at the right time, and it, it, sometimes it is just timing, it's not about the quality of the driver always. If the timing isn't right, you miss the opportunity and by the time the seat does become available you've had to go and find somewhere else and there's some other young guy that's got all this speed that's impressing the bosses and they've forgotten about you which is what's happened with Callum Eilat a little bit um I see quite a, a bizarre situation that the top two are looking at reserve drives in Formula One at the very best you know when like you say we've had past seasons where the top two or top three have gone straight into Formula One an interesting other point I want to make there, Jesse, is that second chances in F1 are hard to come by. So when they come along, you can grab them. But then in F2, like we saw with Yato, you can question some, or some people question the decision of those partners. But also, if you're looking at Yato and you get offered that, you're going to grab that with both hands, much in the same way that Tatiana Kelbron has come back to F2 after being away for a while and coming back in with Shrews and partnering into Filippaldi. And, okay, it didn't go brilliantly at Monza, which not her fault really. That was more Oli Caldwell driving into a really crash and Sanford wasn't the best for either, but it was, it's kind of, again, like we were saying earlier, you see DNA and you think, oh, yeah, they're just a driver. But that's all very context-dependent. And for someone who's been out of single seasons of this nature for a while, getting back into it, was always going to be a challenge and she made progress in Spa and was like starting but always kind of finishing places higher to, to where she was there so as it's this podcast Jesse and it wouldn't really if I didn't have some kind of hair brain prediction I want to get your thoughts on this one Fittipaldi goes to Prima for next year because that seems to be where champion contenders go and he seems after a rookie season like he's very much in the hunt for next year they keep Tatiana for 2023 and because they're just turning into nice chaps over there and they really want to be go get them attitude they do what we also suggested earlier and they hire Jamie Chadwick and they just say sod it let's go for it I don't think that's your most harebrained scheme you've ever come up on this podcast series and Calderon, yeah, as much as it's easy to underwrite her and sort of just say, oh, yeah, look at the look at the results on paper, it's not impressive. And yeah, you look at the results on paper, they aren't impressive. You add the context, you look at the track action she saw, the fact that she came back into this series. I think she'd done a bit of IndyCar hither and thither, hadn't she? I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah, so she'd immediately jump from one very different car into, again, a very different car, both very different aspects, very different setups, very different styles of driving required from them. The adaptability isn't necessarily there, but with an F2 car, with an F2 season, you're not looking for adaptability. You're looking at someone who can build up the talent and the confidence through the course of a year. And over the course of three race weekends, or two, two and a half, sort of, she did that. She's, she got better as the racing weekends went on. And there were points where you looked at her and thought, 
it's almost I think there was points at Zanvor especially where you looked at her and thought she could have been in this series from the beginning or this this year's sort of championship from the beginning with the confidence and the way she's driving it in that field and the Shiru's car isn't hyper competitive it's not the best car on the grid by any means but she was doing much as we'd seen with Enzo Fittipaldi and taking it by the scruff of the neck and sort of demanding the best from that car and yeah credit to credit where it's due she did a pretty good job of it. It's a shame that she sort of injured her hand. We wish her all the best with recovery from that. And hopefully we'll see her back in the car for Abu Dhabi. But yeah, it's just unfortunate that this triple header went the way it did for her. I think a bit better luck. She might have done, done a lot better than we saw. Kind of leads nicely into our final section of this podcast, which is our winners and spinners, which normally we have a winner from just the one weekend. But as it's a triple header, we've kind of had to be a little bit uh, harsh, maybe, depending, definitely on the spinners, but might be a little harsh, or at least I probably will be. Um, but I'm going to start with you again, Jesse. Who's your winner for the triple header of F2? My winner's going to be Jack Dewan. And again, this sort of goes back to that you might not have seen the results on paper, but there's been a lot of good action from that boy over the course of this sort of triple header. He's, he's really endeared me to him. I've really come from sort of quite an endearment with the guy. I think potentially because I still quite like motorbike racing and I recognise the Dewan name from sort of racing quite a while back. It's, it's nice to see him sort of finding a home. He started out trying a bit of bikes, but then sort of got into carts and then eventually made his way up to Formula 2. And he's found a home there and he's doing very well at it. And yeah, like we've sort of mentioned previously, we had sort of chatted about it for a while. The chance of him having an Alpine seat is pretty damn high. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how he progresses. But yeah, through whatever the triple header threw at him, he kept a fairly level head and gave his all at all points in time. So credit to the boy. Lawrence, who impressed you the most from this triple header in Italy? Well, my winner, I don't think it's easy to be right or wrong on these things, but I think I'm... I think I can be fairly certain that I'm right in saying the winner was Felipe Drogovic. Um, it's sort of the, the obvious I don't think you have many people one. arguing with either. <laughs> I'm, I'm not being particularly maybe. imaginative here, but the, as, a, as a triple header go, goes, it was, it was very impressive from him, the, the level of performance that he brought. And I think Formula 2 is all about the qualifying. If you qualify in P5 every single weekend you'll end up winning the championship. You'll bring home the points necessary through a little bit in the sprint race and then being in the right place to potentially get up onto the podium each feature race. And if you compare that, say, with Teo Porcher's um, qualifying in each of those three rounds, Drogovic qualified P1, P1, P4, whereas Porcher qualified P8, P16, P14. And that's why he ran away with the title in the end. And that, that is why, because if you qualify in that position, you're in the right place to, you know, both of Zanvor and um, Spa, Djokovic was completely on, on his own in turn one. There was no danger of him getting into any kind of incident at all. Whereas Porcher, you see him starting further back down and then you get caught up with other drivers and that's just what happens. So I think that's really been the key and, and Drogovic's ability to turn up the totally different tracks to deliver in terms of qualifying and then to execute the correct race. You, you see races like in Spa, he wasn't the fastest driver there, but he still managed to get P2 and, and run doing really close. So I think he's, it's hard to look past him as the, as the winner. 
further and it's that consistency being key there that kind of my choice for for the winner for this triple header which was Liam Lawson because he was consistent for the most part and, and Spa was phenomenal for him for coming back after the summer break it's exactly what he needed to do and okay he had a bit of bad luck in Monza but overall he's been outperforming all of his kind of Red Bull competition in terms of the other drivers which at this point in the season before Abu Dhabi like you say maybe too late to prove yourself by then especially if you're looking to be on F1 for next year he's done just enough I think to keep him in conversations at least Daruva did a good job in Monza but as his kind of main competition for that season for next year it does feel like a little bit too little too late even with two podiums in Monza and like we were saying earlier for like Sivuwasa and Helga they need at least another year before they should be one. even if you give them a couple of test sessions next year in, in FP1 don't want them there just yet. You don't want to bring someone up too early. You might get in the Yuki Snow situation from last year. And whereas you think if he'd stayed in F2 for another year, and maybe he would be the one winning the championship then. Um, because he's if you can get third from being good, you kind of look at it worse now and how well he's progressing. You want to keep him F2 because you want to see him, you want to see what he can do. There. You don't want to rob him of an opportunity. So for me, Liam Lawson did exactly what he used to and was was the winner there. So on the Spinner side of things, um, it feels harsh, but also fair. A bit we've touched on it earlier. I've chosen Teo Porcher as one of them. It just, like we were saying, a little bit overconfident about his own abilities, and then not having the results to reflect that. And context doesn't help a lot either with some of those results, and kind of letting it all get away from him a bit, in, in my opinion. Um, again, it's just that showing of he's a, he's clearly a good driver. But if you want to get to F1, you've, in theory, if we're being pure about it, you've got to be great. doesn't always translate to the drivers who get F1 and who sticks around for a while. But in theory, you need to be great to get there. And he's maybe just lacking that little bit at the moment. And that's why he could do with either another year there. Or, like we were saying earlier, embed himself at Alpha Male, get those testers and familiarise himself with the team, learn how it all ticks, that kind of thing. But for me, the other one was, was London Sergeant. It just... <laughs> was a great three weeks for him and people saying that he should be the one at Williams next year and he's got that FP1 session in Austin I think again that's maybe a case of you're rushing it let him have another season in F2 let's see what he can do there this is also his rookie season this year for Formula 2 calm down just let him mature because if you're making these mistakes week on week on week F1 has multiple double and triple headers in the season now because of the family races. And if you're a driver that needs a bit of a reset, so you, after you have a bad race weekend before you perform again, this is not going to be a great way for him to audition for that. Um, but that's all I'm going to say. I thought we'll hold we'll up too much time there. Jesse, who is your spinner for this triple header? This triple header, Roy Nassani. Um, I think you could equally phrase that as spinner for any race weekend or indeed spinner for the season as a whole. He's not had a good time of it. And especially considering he started off the season pretty well, I think he had a pretty good run of things in Imola. And then you compare that to the racing we saw from him in the likes of Spa and the likes of Zandvoort, especially where he picked up even more super license points that saw him be excluded from Monza it's not the drive that a Formula 1 team wants to see from a potential driver. Obviously, he's had a few Williams FP1 seats from no reason other than potentially money-changing hands. You begin to think, 
your time's up, Sunny Jim. And I think this triple header, if anything, really sort of solidifies that point. More that Lawrence, who's your spinner for the triple header? I'm going to agree with with one of yours there, Tim. I think Logan Sargent had a really disappointing triple header. I think made more disappointing by the fact that early on in the season, all the way through to the middle of the season, he was performing so well. He was unbelievably consistent. He was consistently in the top 10 week in, week out, almost without fail for quite a long stretch. And that, as a rookie, was really impressive in a year where we've seen that this idea that rookies can pop into F2 and win it in their first season like Piastri did, it, it doesn't really hold true. Piastri was certainly an anomaly. And I think to actually see the rookies struggle a bit and develop throughout the season has actually been quite refreshing to see. Um, but Sargent is still the highest placed rookie in the championship, which is really impressive. But I think given that he's still there... <laughs> with how bad his triple header was, I think shows you how good the start of his season was. But to make, you know, to make a, a, a small error in Spa and to lose the back end like that, it was quite bizarre the way in which he did it. He must have just put a lot, far too heavy a right foot coming out through Puan. And then in in Zandvoort, he, he started to look like a rookie in how he, in how he mm. drove in the first corner, locking up and going wide rejoining, getting immediately into a battle with Ralph Boschung and then seemed to just sort of miscalculate when Boschung was going to break and sort of ran into the back of him too eager to get forward to make up that position to make up for lost ground. Um, and I think that that made him look more amateurish than how he has driven through the vast majority of this season. Um, so I think he's he's really had a, had a tough one. But I think I hope that people will look at that and say, this is a blip. This isn't representative of how he is as a driver overall. And he's another one next season that will be right up there in the mix. Uh, we've, I mean, we've said this about so many drivers now. I think next year's, next year's season is going to be brilliant. And you add in some of the drivers that are going to be coming up through Formula 3 as well. You know, the likes of your Victor Martins, your, your Isaac Hadjar, possibly Leclerc. Is going to be a fantastic season next year, and who knows who knows going to win who's going to win that? You wouldn't want to uh, be putting your money on anyone really because it's so uncertain. No, I mean if we could take the closeness of the Formula Three this year and just apply it to Formula Two for twenty twenty three, then I think a that probably wouldn't be one of my most bizarre predictions, and b we would happily sign up for more of that. But of course, we do have Abu Dhabi up next before 2023 even gets underway. But that is all the way in November. So it's going to be a bit of a while before we have that one, depending on when you listen to it. Maybe listen to it just the week before because you want to just remember what the heck happened in this triple header because it will feel like years ago. Until then, though, we will have an F3 triple header review and mini season wrap up, which will be out probably after this episode once we've figured out the rough release date for this. And in the meantime, I have been Team Hours Daily. You can find me over on On The Curbs, Is It Fast, Paddock Shorty, and the Majorex podcast, because I do just about everything these days. Jesse, where can people find you if they would like to see more of you? 
Um, at the moment, I feel like people could probably find me in some sort of sleep-induced coma. But um, if you're looking for something besides that, uh, Classic Car Weekly, there's all my good written content coming out there where I'm writing as the uh, events editor. And uh, this weekend, depending on when you listen to this, you'll be able to find me over at Goodwood Revival, enjoying lots of classic racing there. Plus all the usual social medias, Facebook, Twitter, my own YouTube channel, Instagram. Just go find me. Be kind, because I'm probably quite tired. And Lawrence, where can people find you in the meantime? Yeah, likewise on, on social media in various different guises um, and on Inside F2. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you're wanting all things Formula 2, you need to look no further. Um, so yeah, definitely go give it, give it a look. Check it out. Especially if you enjoy pigeon content, there was some excellent pigeon content from this. There was, there was some wonderful pigeon content. I really learned something, and, and you should head over and, and you'll learn something too, that's for sure. I might have to go and listen to this. I'm always up for some pigeon content. Absolutely. It won't disappoint. I, don't I won't spoil it for you, but it won't disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what way to end the podcast on. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs>